Alright guys, welcome to the fourth episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I interviewed strength and conditioning coach Joel Jameson. Joel is the author of the book, Ultimate MMA Conditioning, and also runs the website, 8weeksout.com. On this episode, me and Joel covered many topics. The main topic we covered was energy system development, which was the main theme of his book, Ultimate MMA Conditioning. It was an extremely informative interview, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. All right, Joel, it's great to have you on the show, my man. Um, how are things in your part of the world? It's great to be on here. Uh just a little cloudy and cold over in Seattle, but that's nothing new, so it's, uh, it's good. <laughs> as, as I said to you earlier on, it's the exact same here in Dublin, so I know how you feel. Um, just yeah, well, I, my, I think last time I was in Dublin, it was cold and rainy over there as well, so. <laughs> so, when you, get off, when you get off the plane, you're like, just like home. Yeah, exactly. The East States weather's uh, not too great, obviously, that much. Uh, great stuff. Um, just for any of the listeners that are not too familiar with who you are and your background, just give us a, a, a brief intro. Yeah, you know, I, I got started uh, in strength conditioning like a lot of guys out in the, the western part of the world and in kind of football and, and working with explosive power athletes and at the University of Washington and then spent some time at the Seattle Seahawks in the NFL. And uh, then, then things changed a lot for me back in 2003, I want to say, or four, whatever it was. I started working with the MMA combat athletes, and that's kind of been my been my biggest focus over the last eight years or so. And really worked with a variety of you know, different guys, seven or eight world champions in sport, and worked with Pride FC and their Dream, and um, worked with Matt Hume for many years and all of his fighters. So it's it's been a long time that you know, I'm really focused on the MMA side of things, and that's kind of become my my specialty these days. But uh, you know, I started out on the other end of the spectrum, in strength and power sports, and just kind of progressed into combat sports over time great stuff <clears throat> just who would you say are your biggest influences um, um, with you as a coach like as a coach who, who would be your biggest influence um, well, you know I've had quite a few great great coaches and mentors around me and I would say probably the, the first one was uh, a guy named Bill Gillespie who's a, a very well known powerlifter and he was the guy that really helped me get my start he was at the University of Washington and I Started out there, and and he was uh, you know a great great coach, great motivator. Really got the kids strong and explosive, and very consistent and hardworking as a coach, and always wanted to learn. So uh, you know I always credit I always credit him with giving me a start and, and the motivation and the desire to kind of pursue the career. Um, and then uh, I was at Mel Siff, who you know, I had a great deal of respect for, and I spent some time uh, over at Mel's house before he passed away, and and uh, you know very scientific minded, obviously always questioned everything and always looking into the research and never taking you know, what was just being sold by the uh, you know mass market so I you know worked a lot from him um, and then I've had a few different different people along the way that you know most people probably aren't going to be familiar with um, Val you know, Val from Omega Wave Systems a Russian that um, had a lot of influence in kind of my early days of, of using the Omega Wave System and kind of looking at training in general and uh, you know those are probably the three Biggest influences, I'd say, but you know, I've, I've had a lot of different people I've worked with over the years. Of you know, all all had an impact as well. <clears throat> Great stuff. Um, what would you say is the biggest problem you see within strength and conditioning? I don't know, lots of problems. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> where to start? Uh, 
And listen, the biggest problem I think today is, is people just do not understand the importance of being able to individualize on some level or any level. And I think coaches these days are far too uh, quick to just do the same program basically for you know one athlete as they do for hundred athletes, and really don't spend time looking. People spend the time looking at you know how to improve the program by changing exercise or by using a different method or by you know doing this drill versus that drill. And, and, and that's what everyone's debating these days. If you look at the forum, there's all kinds of discussions about, you know, is crunch good exercise or bad exercise? Or is, you know, functional movements being useful or is not useful? It's just, you know, it's great to have those debates. But they're missing the point that the programs are going to get better when we start to individualize them, when we start to manage them, when we start to be able to, you know, find out what's right for each person rather than just try and switch out different exercises for the entire group of people. Because at the end of the day, in the more science, we look at and the, the more technology we're able to use, the more we're finding that everybody is different and people respond differently to different training programs. And so rather than trying to find some magical sequence of exercises or some great method, it's, it's more about finding what works for the person you're working with. And, you know, the, the challenges are certainly greater with a large group to do that, but I think that's where the debate should be focused is how do we train large groups, you know, practically, but, but also be able to individualize some extent as much as possible within those settings and how do we manage that process rather than just kind of set a program go about for eight weeks and see what happens which is the other biggest problem I think is people spend way too much time just following a program set in stone and they don't understand how to manage and modify and change the program you go on based on how you actually respond to it you know, it, it would be like uh, you know Sitting a, sitting a football player or soccer, you guys call it, and, and, and making no adjustments at, uh, in between halves or, or football, you know, making no court, making no adjustments to the game plan as you progress through it. And I think that's a big area that's missing, you know, as, as well. So I would, I would say those two areas, you know, number one, not knowing how to individualize or personalize training very well, and number two, not really managing the process whatsoever once, once you get started down that, that particular program. Why do you think those problems exist? Why? Yeah, in in your opinion, uh, because coaches are lazy in general, I think, and uh, you know it's a tradition. I mean, people have trained the way they've trained for a long time. If you really look at it, there really hasn't been um, that many great innovations, I would say, in the training world in the last you know however many years. I mean, we've gone through some different phases, but I think the the average coach just doesn't want to spend the time that it takes to learn how to individualize. It's a very difficult thing to learn how to individually manage and change programs on, as you go based on how people respond. It's a lot more work, to be honest with you. I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's much easier to evaluate a whole team to write a program and just let them get to it. Um, but to understand how to individualize that process, understand how to manage that process, it's a lot more work. And it takes a lot more research. It takes a lot more understanding of how the body works and why people might respond one way versus somebody else. Um, and I think it just takes a lot more uh, effort to really do it that way and, and most people just, just don't and I don't know if they've been given the tools or there's just no one talking about it but you know, I think we're going to see that trend start to shift you know, over the next you know, two, three, five years because technology is starting to give us much more information and I think the more information we can get the better we can start to be at processing it and, and learning how to manage programs and learning how to individualize things just we just, uh, you know, it just hasn't been approach taken and there hasn't been as much information available and so that required a lot more work on the coach and, and you know, the more more information becomes available and the simpler it gets, the easier it's going to be for the coach to start doing that. So I think it's just a matter of time, really. Great answer. Um, your training system, Joel. I, I turn up at your gym. Um, I'm a 
whatever, an MMA fighter, and I want you to train me, what do you do? Well, every, everything, of course, starts with an assessment, and, uh, you know, seeing where the athlete's at, and, and, you know, that goes back to individualization. I think that the biggest thing you have to realize is if, if you want to train a particular athlete, you know, a particular sport, you have to have some baseline to compare it against, so... You know, fortunately for myself, MMA combat athletes, you know, I've, I've trained them for years, so I have a very good database of, of information that I can compare them against to see where they're at. And so the first thing we'll do is we'll put you through the assessment of, you know, strength, power, conditioning, kind of overall fitness, and I'll see where they're at, and then I'll compare them to all the norms that I have established, and I'll see where they're good, and I'll see where they're bad, and then I'll start to formulate the game plan of what they need to do to get better. And it's just about kind of comparing them to that model I've already developed of, you know, here, here's what a good, in shape, you know, strong, explosive fighter looks like. Here's where you're at. Then now I can find the differences, and I can find where you need work, and I can start to build that crafting program that's going to solve those problems and, and make you better where you need to be better. Very good. <clears throat> that's another great answer too. Um, for for the last few years, Joel, um, you know this as well as I do that a lot of people jumped on the anaerobic bandwagon, saying just do intervals and don't do any aerobic work or long slow distance. Um, can you tell us why this might be a um, a mistake to 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 think in such a way to, just to basically um, undervalue the aerobic system? Yeah, well, uh, you know, first of all, I think it's uh, it's just a product of our our society in general. We want quick results. We want uh, you know, we want, we want everything right now, and so we tend to look very much at the short-term side of things, and if we look at the short-term, you know, we, we, if we do look at research and we do look at, uh, you know, different studies that have shown uh, higher intensity versus lower intensity, of course we see, you know, over a six-week period or a four-week period, the way the case may be, we're going to see better results from higher intensity methods. I mean, that's common sense, really. It's, it's like if you want to improve someone's strength, uh, you're going to get better results using one reps and three reps than you are using five reps and ten reps. But you're also going to, those gains are going to diminish much more quickly and then you're going to plateau and then what are you going to do? Um, so, I, you know, I think that people have jumped on the idea that higher intensity is the, the end all be all answer to everything and the intervals are, are, you know, the only thing you need to do. But when you actually look at a training program from a year round standpoint, you realize you can't, you can't do high intensity year round, first of all, because you'll break the athlete apart. Uh, and second of all, the, the gains you're going to get from the higher intensity methods are much, much shorter live, and you have to keep up in intensity to keep getting results, and you can only do that so long. So, uh, you know, I think the first mistake is just not looking at the greater picture of, of a year-round training program and intending to, to only look at a small chunk of time. So, you know, if I only have four weeks to get an athlete ready and, and that's it, then, of course, I'm going to do all the high-intensity stuff I can do to get them ready. But if I've got a year or if I've got six months, then I'm going to have to plan out my intensity uh, a lot better if I want to, if I want to avoid the plateauing in the first three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, I think people have this mistaken notion of, of how the energy systems work in general and the, the belief that intervals are purely anaerobic and everything else is aerobic. And um, the reality is the research is, is you know, really clear over the last few years that intervals by and large tend to be predominantly aerobic and have a huge aerobic component. Um, I think people have kind of underestimated the aerobic system's contribution as a whole. And what we really find is that you know, outside of uh, short you know, 100 meter dash or even 200 meter dash or, you know, field events or weightlifting events, you know, those are certainly very, very anaerobic. But, uh, anytime you've got to repeatedly do something over a fairly long period of time, you find the aerobic system is by far the most dominant system and the most important system in terms of energy production. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even something faster explosive, the fact you're able to repeat it over and over again 
tells you that it's highly aerobic. And, you know, most people are doing these intervals that are massively aerobic, and yet they, you know, they call them anaerobic intervals when they're, they're really not. I mean, the only way to do what I would say a true anaerobic interval would be to do a, you know, a five or eight second sprint, rest five minutes, and do it again. You know, that's an anaerobic interval. Uh, but what most people are doing ends up being quite aerobic. I uh, just like to, like to believe it's anaerobic. So, you know, a lot of it's just education and, and, uh, you know, trying to shift the, the line of thinking from believing that anything fast is anaerobic and everything slow is aerobic because it's, it's, this doesn't work that way. Joel, how did you come to, um, realize that there was more to conditioning than you first thought? I remember you, you made that presentation, um, what, where was that? At the, um, oh, I can't think of the name of it now. You, you made yeah, that's, that's the one. Yeah, the one you stuck up on YouTube because I had the DVD set and I just couldn't think of it. But uh, yeah, the, the the Virginia one. That's the one. And you said that. Mm-hmm. You said that. Um, like and I have to admit, I was the same too. That you know, you think that you lift weights and you get strong. And conditioning was just something you do at the end. How did how did your mindset change on this? Well, you know, like I said in the video, the the DVD, whatever. If I hadn't started working with combat athletes, I probably would never have realized that, uh, you know, the story I told was, was very true. And, it, you know, at first, when I first started working with fighters, you know, I, I literally evaluated them and saw that compared to myself and compared to the athletes I was used to working with and the strength power side, that they were just incredibly weak. And, you know, they certainly weren't explosive. And they, they, you know, I, I, I thought if I went over there and train with them, I was just going to just overpower them and outmuscle them and, you know, have to have no problems with that. And, uh, you know, actually, I did that for about 20 seconds and then I was completely out of gas and, you know, I got my ass kicked from, from then on. And so it was really a kind of a wake-up call when I started training those fighters and I started doing it myself. You know, I started rolling with them, I started taking classes, I started doing the you know, the stuff that they were doing to see what it, what it took out of you and to see what they needed, you know, just as a coach. And, uh, you know, I quickly realized conditioning you know, is, is a whole different ballgame than I was used to. And I think the, uh, the biggest wake-up call was to see that and, and feeling it personally, I mean, you don't know what conditioning is until you hustle on top of you and you can't move and they're beating the crap out of you. It's it's uh, difficult to argue with me for conditioning when you feel that way. So I I just started looking at things a lot differently when when I started working with those guys and I started rolling myself. Where where did you start to get your information from, though? Like, I I, I understand, like, you're like, Jesus, there's a lot more to this than, than I originally thought, but... Like where where did you go to after that? Like you know the, when you realize right, I need to I need to understand this more. Like what resources or, or who did you who did you seek information from? Um, you know, I think probably the first guy I started talking to was um, uh, there's a guy named Val Mastetkin, and he's one of the owners of the Omega Sport Technology System. And um, you know, I'd used Omega for a while before that, and and Omega people are familiar with it. Really measures a lot of stuff. But part of what it measures is energy system development. So. Can, you can very quickly and easily get a, get a profile of an athlete, and you can see their aerobic development versus their anaerobic development. You know, the VO2 max or lactate threshold, you can see all these different parameters of different athletes uh, non-invasively and, and quickly. And so they've seen this profile over thousands and thousands of athletes with the, with the Omega Waves. Um, and so, I, you know, I started talking to him about what he what he'd seen in different sports and different uh, athletes and kind of what it meant. And, and he kind of started giving me some of the pieces to put together. Um, and then from there, I just did a lot of research, lots of different, uh, you know, online journals and research articles. And you know, I, I really found there wasn't that many good books out there that really gave good, you know, there, there's a lot of books that give the, the science behind it in terms of, uh, you know, the, the metabolism that's going on and very detailed science, physiology, but very little that connects that 
started to piece together myself, and I had to you know, spend late nights reading journals and, and finding uh, you know, various things I could talk through different aspects of it. But it was it was, it was not an easy process by any means because I, I just don't think there's a lot of great information out there. So it's all either all science based or all just kind of you know, post experience, and there's very little out there that connects it to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's why I really enjoyed your book. I was like, there's just nowhere where this information is, and and you also wrote it in a way that was very easy to understand. Um, cardiac output, Joel. This is something that has kind of been thrown around lately, but a lot of people still don't understand why why you would do it and what it's for. Can you can you just explain what is cardiac output and why you would use it? Yeah, well, it's good old fashioned road work. I mean. I think it's funny that in combat sports, people are now saying road work is is overrated, or road work doesn't need to be done, or road work slows you down. Oh, you know, all these arguments being used. But if you look, I mean, literally for the last fifty years, combat sports, boxing, wrestling have, have relied on road work, and guys have gotten in great shape. I mean, we see heavyweight boxers go fifteen rounds without uh, gassed out, and we you know, we see MMA guys gassing out in the first round now. Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's funny that people want to write off all their methods and say they don't work when we've seen, you know, for endless years, guys getting in great shape doing road work. And we've seen some of the most explosive guys out there. You know, you see Pacquiao, you see Mayweather, you know, you see all these explosive guys doing road work. And it obviously didn't hurt their you know, performance, their ability. So, you know, why we should do it is simple. I mean, number one, uh, longer, slower, volume-based work built, built capillary density. It builds mitochondria. And it, it helps us, um, it's called eccentric hypertrophy uh, of the heart. It enlarges the heart, basically, and, and makes your lung system more efficient and, and uh, you know, gives you better endurance because of that. And, uh, you know, we see, we see obviously benefits from higher intensity methods and intervals and everything else has its place. But the type of uh, improvements you're going to see from the lower intensity work is, is different. And it's based on the volume, it's based on do it for a long period of time and you do that you obviously get different results than when you just do short and high burst so you need both I mean you need to have the cardiac output you need to have uh, a large and large ventricle you need to have the mitochondria the fibers you need to have the peripheral you need to build the vascular network you need to have all these things that happen during lower intensity training if you shortcut that you tend to miss out on those things and that's why a lot of people end up catching out when would you use cardiac output with someone? I've heard yourself and David Taney, you know, uh, put this kind of if they're over, um, if they're over a resting heart rate of sixty beats a minute, you usually do this cardiac output work with them in between a range of one twenty to one fifty. Is that right? That's about right. I mean, like I said, the, the majority, you know, of the combat athletes I've worked with over the years that, that end up, you know, that have good conditioning, their heart rates are almost always between the upper upper forties to mid fifties at the most. So, you know, if you get if you get a guy in there that's in the sixties, you you pretty much need to do some of that lower intensity work. With them. you need to build some cardiac output and, and those are the guys that will you know, do a higher volume than others. And, and you know, it really really depends on the athletes training. I mean there's literally some guys that the way they approach their skill work is very cardiac output based because they tend to do a lot of lower intensity work for a long periods of time. And then those guys that go in the gym and just bang it out and they're out of there that, that never really get that. So you kind of look at what they're doing in training and I'll tell you a lot about what they're going to need to do outside of training, you know, their skill training, I mean. Uh, I think that some guys, some guys literally go in the gym and, and roll and, and kind of do technique work and they get a lot of that lower intensity work and they might not need it. Um, but there's other guys, like I said, they just want to go to the gym and spar all day long and they never, never get that. So it, it just depends on the athlete and kind of where they're at. But 
yeah, generally speaking, anyone who's a 60 resting heart rate or above will spend some time doing it and try to get it down to 50s and then probably do, you know, rest it up from there. Have you had any individuals that, like, have struggled with this concept? You know you get these individuals who are like, harder is better, harder is better, and you're, you're trying to explain, no, no, you need to... We need to get your resting heart rate down. You need to, you know, do do what I'm telling you to do. Because I know that, like, uh, if I was to try and implement some cardio output, output work with, like, the certain sports here in Ireland, some of the coaches would be like, what the hell's going on here? The guys aren't doing anything, or, or, or such and such is doing nothing. Have you found that with anyone you've worked with? Um, to be honest, not really, because, you know, guys at this point, for the last several years, a lot of them fly in from all over the U.S. or all over the world to train with myself and with Matt, obviously. Um, so when they get here, they're pretty much ready to do whatever we tell them, and they they uh, know that it's going to work because they've seen seen the results of other fires we've worked with, and they've they've heard about what uh, you know what they expect. So uh, I, yeah, I, I definitely had a few guys ask us why or, or you know what what's the what's the purpose or what do you expect to get out of it. But when you explain it to them, when you give them the reason behind it, and you know literally you can you can just tell them the experience of so other athletes that have done it, and you know, like I said, combat sports have done road work for. For 50 years, I mean, it's, it, it works. It serves a purpose and there's a benefit to it. And if you just kind of talk to the athlete about why they're doing it, then, then most of them are going to be pretty receptive. As far as coaches, that's a different story sometimes. But, you know, fortunately, I, the, only, the only combat sport coach I work with is, is Matt Hume, and, and we're obviously the same page to everything we do. So I've never had to, to worry about that issue. <laughs> or you could just say to them, because I said so, and just leave it at that. <laughs> so again, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, oxidative work, Joel. Can you just tell our listeners what's oxidative work then, and w- what the difference is between oxidative and cardiac output? Um, oxidative versus cardiac output. Are you talking about the uh, oxidative squats or the tempo squats, or yeah, the, the, exactly? the, the yeah, yeah, kind of the, the methods they kind of outlined in your book for the kind of is it more the peripheral adaptations in the kind of the cell of the muscle rather than sure, well. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, any, any time you're, you're looking at energy production and on the aerobic side, you have to have, obviously, oxygen delivery from the vast cardiovascular system in the muscle, and then you have to have, you know, the muscle itself has to use that oxygen and pull it up into the mitochondria to, to create the ATP aerobically, and so you obviously have to work both sides, and the, the cardiac output stuff, so the longer, slower distance, that's going to work. You know, it, it works the heart's ability, the cardiovascular system's ability to deliver the oxygen, but we still have to work the muscular system's ability to utilize that oxygen. And so, you know, oxidative squats and tempo squats type stuff that are there in the book to talk about are just ways to improve the muscle's ability to pull the oxygen in and, and use it to create energy. And there's different ways to do it. I mean, there's a lot of different methods, obviously, but you know, the, the tempo method I talk about, the longer, slower, uh, kind of even, even kill, kill through the tempo and non-pausing and all these different things just help the, the muscles themselves utilize that oxygen more efficiently so that they can produce more of their energy aerobically and less of anaerobically, which is basically what determines your endurance in the first place. It's going to come down to how much of your energy you produce aerobically and how much you produce anaerobically. And if you produce a ton of it anaerobically, you fatigue quickly. If you produce a lot of it aerobically, you can go for a long period of time. So it's really about just you know, where the energy production is coming from and how much it was produced from one side versus the other. Mm-hmm. So, with your testing protocols, Joe, when you test somebody and they show up weak, maybe, um, like they show up weak in their power output, do you would you still do like an initial sort of oxidative block, or would you be like, no, their aerobic capacity and oxidative capacity are all fine; they don't need work there. It showed up fine in the test. We're going straight into power stuff. How 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 do you plan that out? Yeah, I mean, 
no, I mean, if, if, if their aerobic system is fine, I mean, if they come in and they're showing a resting heart rate in the, you know, the 50, let's say, and, you know, they, we run some other conditioning uh, evaluation and they, and they test well on that, and there's no reason for me to do more of it. They're obviously in good enough shape. I mean, why would I waste my time? Um, so, no, if, if they show up and their conditioning's good with their strength and their power, is what they're lacking, and that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to improve the things that need improving. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you go and, if you work for a new fighter and you find out his striking is great, but his submissions are terrible, I'm not going to keep working on striking. That's I'm going to work on his ground game. I'm not going to work on his ground game. He's going to fix, fix what needs to be fixed and work what needs to be worked for him to get better as a fighter. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I feel no need to, to work a certain sequence, you know, to do the typical um, you know, strength, power, hypertrophy, whatever order you want. I mean, I'll, I'll work the athlete with it to be worked. I don't care about any order or any, anything else. Yeah, because I think even myself now, I, I think very regimented as in like, you know, block one is your hypertrophy stuff and your general PPP. But then when I kind of read your book, it was like, I don't know, Joel kind of tests and sees what, what they're lacking and that's what he kind of focuses in on and it made a lot more sense. Also in your book, Joel, you talk about the the the, the fact that you can't separate your strength and your conditioning. Can you just expand on this for the listeners? Yeah, well, I mean, people have the idea that you're going to develop your strength and you're going to develop your conditioning or, or that there'll be separate qualities when really they're, they're the same thing, right? Strength is a measure of how much force you can produce, period. I mean, that's all you're measuring. Power is, is you know, a measure of the rate of energy that supports that force, but if you look at the difference between strength and conditioning, the only thing the conditioning is doing is it's a measure of how long your body can support that force production, period. So if you're producing higher level of force, it takes greater energy to support them, right? So your your conditioning is just a matter of how much your body can support the force you're producing. So strength and power athletes obviously are producing much, much higher forces than endurance athletes. But endurance athletes are producing them for much, much longer. So you, you can't produce more force and more power without any more energy, and, and that's really... Uh, you know, it's conditioning to measure how long you can produce that for. So you, you can never improve or alter or change one without affecting the other. It's just the way it goes. If you're producing more force, more power, you have to supply more energy somehow. So you know, everything's related. It's all a matter of how much force you can produce and, and how long you can sustain it for. It's all tied in the same, same systems and the same thing. It's not like you can ever separate them out. So I think people need to understand that you know, there's a reason strength and power athletes will gas in 30 seconds in an MMA ring and you know, MMA athletes can go for five minutes, three rounds or five rounds, they can't lift and do the same amount of weight because there's always a trade-off. The more strength you have, less endurance you're going to end up having eventually. I mean, there's, there's just no way around it. You, you'll never find a guy who runs 100 meter world record time and then if you run a marathon, it's just not going to happen. So people can understand kind of how the, the whole thing ties together. That's obviously we're going to talk about in the book. Joel, explain why you need to develop power before capacity. Um, well, there's, I mean, there's actually different ways you can go about it. Personally, I, I like to develop power for capacity because I want to be able to, I think it's easier to sustain the, the power once you've developed it than the other way around. So I'll always work on, on the maximum, you know, power of the system and then I'll work on extending that a little bit. Um, but I think that's a better approach. It's like if you're going to run, uh, distances, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't run a whole marathon and then working out fast you can do it. You'd work on, you know, running dirt certain distances for speed and then increase the distance you can cover. So it's, you know, it goes back to the old Charlie Francis for, you know, longer, shorter, shorter, longer. There's different ways to approach it. But, uh, you know, just my, my personal opinion, you're better off starting with the power and, and working on how long you can extend that forward than, than trying to do the other way around. But, 
you know, there's, there's, there's arguments, I suppose, to be made for putting both ways. What would you say are the biggest problems you see when people try to de develop the alactic system? Just from my own personal opinion, you all see people going, we're doing speed work, and like the rest periods are literally like 20 seconds in between each effort, and you're like, that's just not speed work. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So, so what, do you, what else would you see would be the big problems when people say, oh, we're doing speed work? Well, that, I mean, that is the big problem. You, you have nailed ahead people. People think they're doing speed work, but they're so fatigued from, from literally resting for 20 or 30 seconds that you're nowhere near your top speed. I mean, you, you would never expect a, uh, you know, a, a guy running 100 meter sprints to run 100 meter sprint, rest 20 seconds, and then run another one, rest 20 seconds, run another one, and improve his speed. He would never get faster. He'd probably get slower, if anything else. So I think people have this completely mistaken idea of what speed work, or what power work really is, and they try and confuse the two with, with what's really conditioning work. Um, so people need to learn how to rest a whole lot longer. I mean, you need to be resting five minutes sometimes, ten minutes sometimes, if you're really talking about maximum speed and maximum power and maximum explosiveness. You've got to rest a long time. It's like a you know, power lifter or Olympic weight lifter. They're not, they're not resting 20 seconds between the heavy singles. They're resting four minutes, six minutes, you know, they're resting a long time because that's what it takes to fully get back to the point where you can go 100% again. And if you're not going 100%, you're really not improving speed or explosive power. You, you've got to be fully rested to do that. And if you're resting 20 seconds or 30 seconds, then you're working some action the entire time. You're just not going to get faster or more explosive. Joel, there's something I noticed in the field, and it kind of influenced me when I first got into it. And what it was was strength coaches seem to look at strength training from a very biomechanical standpoint, as in if we do everything on one leg, it's going to transfer more. And then when I read your book, I was like, you know what, Joe looks at this from the biochemical standpoint as if we train this energy system, it'll transfer more. Do, do you think we can combine the two for, for an optimal training system? And why do, you think people, yeah. why do you think people concentrate so much on that biomechanical aspect? Well, let me well, ask your second question first. I think people concentrate more on the biomechanical aspect because it's easier to be honest with you I think most strength coaches out there don't really understand energy systems very well and uh, you know, a lot of them will even tell you that I mean I, I think there's a much much greater understanding of you know, how to look at an exercise and try to evaluate it from a biomechanics standpoint than, than trying to look at a method and understand the energy systems behind it or the sporting event and look at the energy systems so it, people are just much more comfortable with trying to evaluate you know you can, you can look at an exercise and Look at a you know drill in a sport, and you can just, you know sort of get an idea of the biomechanics, or at least they think they can. Um, but they, they have a much harder time trying to grasp the energy systems. It's much more difficult to measure the energy systems for most people. It's, it's more of a black box. They really don't understand. So it's you know it's not surprising that, that that's where the emphasis is. Um, but you know absolutely you have to have you, know, you have to have both. You have to understand the biomechanics, and you have to understand the biochemistry and the energetics behind it. Because at the end of the day, that's that's what dictates whether or not what you do in the weight room or the conditioning or whatever realm you're talking about, whether or not it transfers into the sport. Because if if the biomechanics are completely different and the energy systems are completely different than what the athletes do in the sport, then you're basically wasting your time. I mean, they're, they're not going to get any better if, if there's no improvement in either area and you're you're doing something completely wrong. So, yeah, I, I think you always have to be looking at both aspects. You have to be looking at the biomechanics, which is basically where the force is being produced and how the force is being produced. And then you have to look at the energetics, which is how that energy is being produced to support that force. You have to have um, you know, the big picture of, of both areas if you really want to understand the transfer of 
things and how well what you do with the athlete is going to carry over into their performance on the field or in the ring or cage or wherever it may be. You have to always be cognizant of, of both areas, and I think that's, you know, another area that, like I said, is lacking the strength conditioning is, is understanding the, the distinction and how to evaluate both sides of it, not just one. Um, can you can you expand like how 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 do you how would you uh, well you've already obviously told us how you go about the biochemical tests and energy systems from a biomechanical standpoint how are you looking at this with your athletes? Um, you know, I think you have to have a pretty de- decent understanding of the basics of biomechanics and force production, and then personally, I think you have to spend some time watching the athlete do their sport, and you have to study the sport a bit as well and see. You know, where are the forces actually being produced and see um, you know, what is required biomechanically for them to, to get in the position they need to get into. And so, you know, the way I did it was, was like I said, I just started to train train the sport of MMA. I really wanted to see what the athletes were, were pushing themselves through and what forces were being produced and where. And, you know, um, I think the more you spend time studying the sport, you know, maybe you don't do the sport yourself, but you at least have to spend time watching the sport and you get some video on the sport and kind of see what the movements are, what the positions are. You know, get some idea of where the forces are being produced and how they're being produced, and then you can go about starting to replicate some of those areas in the weight room. But uh, you know, take it takes some education, takes some time. It's not something um, that comes easily. And I, I experiment a lot of times. You know, I'll, I'll look at movements in the particular sport, and I'll start to try and figure out how to, to, to replicate some of the aspects of it. And then I'll you know I'll try some stuff out, and I'll see if the athlete sees like it's, you know, I'll ask them, does this feel similar to what you feel in the event? Does this feel similar to what you're feeling when you're doing your sport? And I'll start to kind of play with them and find, find exercises that work. But I think at the end of the day, you really, when you're talking about very specific exercises, there's not that many, you know, for most sports. I mean, if you look at uh, you know, guys like Bonkerchuk and some of the better guys that are, I think, in specificity and understand the exercise, they don't use very many exercises. I mean, literally, if you look at most of the programs, they're like five, six, eight exercises total because they find the exercises that work the best and those are the ones they use, and they tend to throw out a lot of the other exercises because they, they don't transfer and they're not as useful for high-level athletes. So I think it's a matter of, of as a coach, over time, you kind of learn which exercises are, are better for your athletes for a given sport and which ones aren't, and you start to pair those down and, and get rid of the useless ones and really spend more time doing the ones that, that do matter. So, uh, Joe, what... We tend- Joe, Joe, what would yep. be what would be your answer to coaches that always say the same answer when when people come on and go, how do I train such and such an athlete? And then a coach replies, oh, train every athlete the same. They all need power. They all need strength. What would be your, your reply to that? Well, if if that was the case, and then they shouldn't be playing, uh, you know, why not just go train their their sport year round? Because you know, they're, they're, if you're if you're going to make the argument that all sports basically the same stuff, then then you know think of a machine circuit then what's the difference of doing anything differently right yeah, you can yeah. make the argument they could do is they could do a machine circuit they could buy them it wouldn't even matter yeah. I mean you're, you're basically making the argument that your job as a strength conditioning coach uh, doesn't really matter because you're saying that anything works or anything is the same so you know honestly anyone, anyone that would say that I think that doesn't really understand strength conditioning that doesn't really understand uh, performance and, and how that body works because there's, there's vast differences between you know football player versus the volleyball player versus
Yeah, I, I'm just you know that that that's not how I answer questions. I say I, but I'm just saying I'm just saying you often hear coaches that would say, oh, you know, everyone's an athlete. Every athlete needs power and strength. Train train them for power and strength, and then you know sometimes you know, and usually these answers are being given from a fairly experienced coach to like a, a newbie, and you know, and, and like I suppose you're kind of like, well, that's not really that true, but uh, and then you're kind of like, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> um, no. People have their own way of looking at things, and, and like I said, there's there's been entire programs built around one type of failure on machine circuits, and coaches are probably the you know idea like that. So there's there's stories of people that will listen to some idea if someone's got it. That doesn't make it a good one. Yeah, Joel, how, how do you think you could you can um, make your model work in a team setting with a large group of athletes? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing I think when it comes to large group of athletes is. You know, obviously it becomes much more difficult to individualize everything, but what I do personally when working with larger groups is break up a larger group into smaller groups. And so, for example, we work with a, uh, a roller derby team, which sounds funny. Um, girls skating circles and trying to knock each other over more or less. So we had uh, like 15 of them or 20 of them or some number, and, and we broke them up into three different groups. And so we'll, we'll put them athletes in their evaluation. And what you'll find is that you know, certain athletes are good here, certain athletes are bad there, but you can generally group them up according to kind of which category they fall into. And so you might need three categories or four categories or, or whatever. And it's really not that much different than, than most coaches now will just group their athletes by position and they'll come up with a couple groups, you know, based on their, their position. But, uh, instead I would just say you need to break them up according to their needs and to where they, where they fall based on some assessment that you're doing with them. So, um, you know, I think it's it's definitely more of a challenge work for larger groups, but if you break it down into smaller groups, you can start to to put athletes in the categories rather than just by position. You can start to train them where they where they need to be trained and and approach it from from that standpoint. I think that's the most effective way to do it. Joe, can you explain how you you use the block model for your training system? Yeah, I mean, unless you unless you're talking about. Um, you know, a, a lower level or kind of a moderate level athlete who can improve by training a lot of things together. You know, in any higher level athlete, you, you really have to focus on what it is that you want to improve because it takes a lot of time and effort in those areas to make them better. So I'll focus on generally only one or two motor qualities or one or two areas of, of the, you know, performance that I want to improve at the time. And, I'll, you know, we'll really focus on those areas because it takes a lot of time and effort to get them better at the highest level. So you, you can't expect to train kind of everything all at once and expect it to improve when it's already all pretty good. And uh, so I'll focus usually on six or eight week blocks of, of a particular area and we'll you know, make sure all of the training is focused around that. And the best analogy is you know, if, if you look at combat athlete himself, when he first starts training in combat sports, he can improve his jiu-jitsu, he can improve his... Um, wrestling, he can improve his striking and his Muay Thai and his kickboxing all at once because he sucks at all of them. So just a little bit of work here and there every day will make all of them better. But after, let's say, a year or two of training that way, you know, he needs to really spend more time on the areas where he's not so good if he really wants to improve them. And that means spending a little bit less time in the other areas. And that's really all block training is. It's focusing your efforts on one or two particular areas rather than trying to train everything together at the same amount because you're just not going to get enough stimulus in those in the areas need improvement if you're spending all your time doing other stuff as well. Uh, you had a great conversation on Strength Coach with, with Chris Frankel with um, due to, or about central uh, the central nervous system fatigue. 
Can you just explain, um, or not explain, but discuss your thoughts on central nervous system fatigue? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we, you know, I think his main point was it's difficult to separate them out, so why try and do so? Or, you know, he has to explain his point of view, but, um, you know, I think we have to understand that everything comes down to the brain. The brain is the sensory, um, you know, it's the computer. It takes in all the information that uh, periphery provides it and it makes decisions and it, and it sends the signals back and forth of what to do. And so I think that there's, there's absolutely a central and a peripheral component of fatigue, both acutely and, and chronically. And I think if we look at um, almost any exercise, there's, there's got to be some central control over, over power output, and the central system has to play some role in governing that power output. Um, and the muscles themselves obviously play a role. We know the muscles decrease contractility as they fatigue, and we know there's something going on in the peripheral as well. Um, but I think it's also clear that there's some level of central control in the whole thing as well. And, you know, really using the Omega Wave over the years, you can measure um, what they what they measure is like a general CNS function. And you see kind of how different exercises and different methods will decrease or increase kind of the central uh, drive, the central motor drive. And so you know, really my point was that, you know, we have to look at fatigue and we have to look at adaptation and, and the whole training process from, you know, not just what we're doing to the muscles, but how the brain is going to be affected and how the brain's governing of everything is going to be affected. And that, that plays a role, obviously, in performance because, you know, at the end of the day, the brain, in my opinion, is, is the central central control and central master computer. It takes in lots of information and it processes it and then it decides what it's going to do. And the CNS, uh, you know, plays a huge role in performance on all levels. And so I think just kind of looking at fatigue and looking at performance from a central and a peripheral standpoint gives you a much broader picture than just considering the muscles themselves and thinking they're the end-all, be-all because at the end of the day, they just receive signals. I mean, the muscles receive signals from CNS to contract or not. That's pretty much all they do. And everything kind of comes down to how the body coordinates, you know, all the energy production and, and the force production and how everything is tied together as a matter of, of how the brain you know, operates and how the brain regulates and manages the entire process. So it really does just my point is there's, there's more to fatigue both acutely and chronically than, than just like in the muscles. I think that the brain, how it regulates and governs everything is, is a huge component that we need to take into consideration. You also said in your discussion too that, you know, Charlie Francis kind of had, had discovered this already like 20 years ago. Um, maybe he knew something we didn't know, but he just kind of seemed to know that it, the high-low system was the right thing to do from a CNS standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and uh, you know, Randy Huntington, who I first talked about you know, years ago at the Omega, the introducing Omega, you know, really, really said the same thing. And um, you know, he was actually able to measure CNS with the Omega, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, I think guys like Charlie and, and Randy were just ahead of their time in understanding kind of how how the body recovers and, and the impact of, of, you know, maximal effort, speed, and power work on CNS function and the, the fatigue that it does cause and, and that there's, you know, there needs to be more recovery time than just the muscles are considered because, you know, like I said in the argument, if it was just a matter of muscles, then you could train maximum effort, you know, single reps, triple reps, depth jumps, lower body one day, and then you can do it upper body the next day, and then you could do it, you know, lower body another day later. I mean, you could go back and forth with massive high intensity just switching body parts around. But we know real quick that an athlete will overtrain very quickly if, if you try to do, you know, nothing with high intensity, simply alternating body parts because it's, there's a centralized component that will fatigue and that accumulates fatigue over time. If you were to try that, you would you'd feel like crap pretty, very quickly. So there's, there's just more to it than that. And I think 
you know, Charlie's Hilo system is, is a great example of, of learning how to look at programming from more than just a muscle standpoint, muscular standpoint. And, and it was really built around the central idea of CNS and CNS function and CNS recovery and adaptation. And obviously, it, you know, it works. I mean, I've, I've used variations of high-level for years, and he obviously great success with it. And then the other coaches, just Buddy Morris and Tom, and different guys have employed it. And, and you know, in my opinion, it produces the best results that, that uh, you, know, you can get. It's important to understand kind of why, and it's, it comes down to the, the brain and the CNS and kind of how it all works. So would you, would you say that a, tr- a three-day program, kind of like that Charlie used, would would be the optimal way to use high low, or is there many ways that you can use high low? Um, I think there's many ways you can. There's plenty of ways you can use it. I mean, I've I've been able to use it with the Omega Wave, where I can actually measure the CNS function, and then I can base when I'm going to do high, when I'm going to do low, based on you know objective look at CNS function. But uh, you know, there's lots of different, mo- different models of how to do it. Just the principle, I think, is the important part that you train high or you train low, and you avoid the middle ground, and you give. CNS chance to recover before you do that next high day. Um, and James Smith, if you know who he is, he put out a manual, kind of the, the high low manual a few years ago that had a lot of different variations, a lot of different templates to kind of how to put it together. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's more about the principle of, of high and low than it is, you know, exact daily structure, anything else. Uh, just the overall principle of it, uh, I think, is what's important. So that's, that's James Smith, the thinker you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He wrote something called the high low manual, and he just outlined a lot of different, uh, a lot of different templates for kind of how to implement high low, and it's, it's a great you know, book that very few people have picked up. But uh, yeah, it's just, high low, I think it's probably the definitive guide out there. Yeah, James is, is a very well read um, strength coach. I, I've I've seen him speak a few times. I have one or, one or two DVDs that he's on. Um, yeah, he's out in California now these days. And I talked a little while ago. He's just kind of one of those guys under the radar. You know, he. he Definitely, he got on the lead for a while and, and answered a lot of questions and put up a high low, and then he just kind of disappeared. So, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, <laughs> um, go find the stuff. Joel, you've mentioned the Omega Wave now two or, two or three times. C- can you just get more in depth and tell our listeners what exactly is the Omega Wave? Maybe get into Valenzeski Valen- and, and talk about why he created it, and just give us the uh, give, give us exactly what it measures and why it measures uh, what it does. Um, yeah, the Omega Wave is. Really, um, a product of, of Russian technology, and it was the, the the core technology behind it, which is called heart rate variability, was developed back in the '60s for the, the Russian space program, and in the '80s, it started working on developing for the athlete and performance side of things. And it really measures measures a lot of stuff. But if you want to get down to it, it's it's like plugging your car into a diagnostic system and kind of seeing how all the body systems are running and uh, kind of how the athletes develop, and it, you know it shows you. The profile their energy system development, if their aerobic developments, you know, here versus there, what their aerobic system is, uh, shows you their central nervous system function and, and how well that's uh, working and it's high or if it's low, you can, you can see CNS work or CNS function. Um, and then you can basically see a snapshot of recovery. So you can see on a daily basis, you know, whether an athlete is, is completely recovered from their previous training or if they're still fatigued or if they're accumulating fatigue over a given microcycle or, or a month or whatever. And it really just gives you, um, you know, an inner, inner picture, I would say, of the athlete's adaptation and, and the response to training. So it shows you, you know, very individually and very objectively how well an athlete is doing in response to the program you're putting them through. It gives, it gives you an objective view of whether or not you're doing the right things and whether or not they're improving the right areas or if you're not, you know, if you're, if you're 
train them the wrong way and they're overtraining or if you're not pushing them hard enough and they're not being effective at all, I mean, it really just gives you a, a gauges, you know, set of gauges to look at and those gauges give you a lot of information that as a coach, you can now make decisions about how you want to train the athlete and you can make changes. I mean, I, I very rarely, I mean, I, I basically never, you know, write a program ahead of time and then just follow straight through it. I always make changes as I, as I go through it and I'll, I'll you know, regulate volume, I'll regulate intensity, I might swap out different exercises, I might change the days and I'll do a lot of stuff based on how well the athlete is responding and I'll, I'll manage that entire process based around what actually happens when you get into it. So it's, the Megaway is just a really good tool for providing information and that's really the, the core of what it does. It provides you a ton of information to make decisions about decisions with as a coach that if you didn't have it, you really, you really can't get them because there's, there's no other way to look at, you know, inside you're, you're having to kind of just guess and make make some assumptions if you don't have that information to, to go off of. And Joel, how, how would you change the program on on the information that you get from the Omega Wave? Like, let's say, I, I believe it Like it looks at, you know, metabolic function as well as, like, CNS fatigue. And, like, like how would you know what to do in the training given the information from, from the Omega Wave? Well, I'll look at two things, really. I mean, number one, I'll look at the changes and, like you said, it gives you metabolic function, so... If now these metabolic systems aren't improving the way that I think they should be, then I'll change the methods because I'm doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't really happen because they don't know what I'm doing. But then secondly, since I'm able to measure the stress on a daily basis and I can measure the recovery, and that's really where I'm going to change a lot of stuff is, you know, if, if an athlete's not recovering well, if, if they did a lot more skill training than I might have thought they were going to, if they didn't sleep the night before, you know, if they maybe have a lot of mental stress, if they have all these factors that, are causing them to adapt differently than expected, then I'm going to manage their volume, I'm going to manage their intensity and, and the overall methodology. So, you know, for example, I, you know, I have a fighter come in and, and I play, and I'm playing to do a high day and I'm, you know, playing to do a lot of explosive work and, and I look at them and their CNS is shot and, you know, they just look fatigued and they didn't recover well. Then I'm going to change that completely. I'm going to do, you know, probably some tempo runs or some, some light recovery accessory work and I'm, I'm not going to, to you know, train them the way I planned because they weren't ready for that. They weren't going to perform well and it wasn't going to make them better. So I'm going to change exactly what I was going to do based on kind of where they're at that day. So it just, it, it lets me see if what I'm doing is, is working and it also lets me manage things based on what they're doing outside of what I do with them because you know, they're, they're spending an hour with me a day and then they're spending the rest of the time skill training and living their life and all those things have a huge role in what they're going to do with me and how what I do affects them. And so it gives me a tool to kind of measure those things and decide what I want to do with them based on based on all those other factors that I have no control over. Joel, for for coaches like me who who aren't in a position to to buy something like the Omega Wave, what or how could we uh, monitor our athletes um, in such a way? Sure. Well, you're you're in luck because I'm actually in the middle of releasing um, a product that is going to be for iPhone or Android phone, and, and by the time that people listen to this, uh, I'm going to have a lot of information about it on my website, but it'll be coming out uh, right by the middle of December, and uh, for literally less than a couple hundred bucks, you're going to be able to get an application that works, you know, with your mobile phone, and a little piece of hardware to plug into it, and a lot of heart rate belt, and it does heart rate variability, and I've spent about nine months uh, developing and kind of correlating this whole system to the Omega Wave, and it correlates at about a 90% uh, range, so it correlates extremely high with what the Omega Wave tells you, and so it's going to give really 
an opportunity for all sorts of folks and athletes out there who've never been able to look at this uh, before. They're not going to be able to have you know same type of information. It doesn't get into the same depth as far as uh, the metabolic systems and the CNS, but from a recovery standpoint and from a autonomic system standpoint, it gives you uh, the same information. It gives you the same same picture that, that I give you in wave. And so it's, uh, you know, I'm excited about it because, you know, I've used it for years. And for now, you know, up till now, no one else has really been able to get that, you know, unless you spend 35 grand, which is what the Omega Wave costs. And now for a couple hundred bucks, you're going to be able to have access to it. And so that's something that's uh, going to be up there very soon. And I think that, you know, any coach or athlete serious about the training and, and wants to be able to measure, monitor and track and uh, manage and do the things I've done, they're going to be able to do it for the first time much more expensively and, and quickly and easily. Sign me up. <laughs> I'm definitely getting one. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll be out soon. Uh, like I said, I think December, December 13th, I'm going to make the first, uh, I've got 250 of them that are going to go on for sale. Um, and I'm, I'm really just selling to people that are members of my site and a couple of friends uh, to begin with. And then once I have them all in stock, which will be early next year, then they'll go on sale to, to everybody else. But if you just go to my website, just com. there'll be uh, a video and some a PDF post on there. It's got all the details. Um, by the time people listen, this will be up. So just just decide and get all the information. I'm I'm honored that announcement was was made on my show. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. It's made in your show. <laughs> Joe, I've been, I've been hinting at it for weeks, but uh, this is um, you know just put the PDF out there next week. So yeah, I, I read so I'm I read. Finally, ready to get out there. Yeah, I read it on your blog. You were like you were, you were going to release something, this, and it was in your book, I believe. The end of your book, you were saying you're hoping to have something in place. Um, yeah, it just it took a lot longer than I thought. Unfortunately, it's not easy to do, um, and really, it's it's been because of the mobile phones. Uh, the technology of mobile phones these days is just so much better than it was even when I wrote the book. I mean, it's yeah, become yeah. so much more common. Everyone, everyone's got an app, and to do to do an app on a mobile phone is it's so much easier now than it used to be. Yeah, definitely. So it's just definitely. been fun. It's been finding the right people at the right time to finally put it together for me, but uh, it's, it's done. I've been playing around with it. You know, I've got the version of my own phone that I use every day now that I've used for months to correlate, and uh, it, it works. It's, it's a great tool. Joel, heart rate variability. You and David Tanney were the first people I heard to start talking about um, HRV. And ever since I've, I've, I, you know, I've read numerous books, whether it was it's training books or whether it's like uh, nutritional health books, and this heart rate variability thing seems to keep coming up with, uh, with longevity and health and fitness. Can you just explain what is the importance of heart rate variability? Yeah, heart rate variability, if you really want to get down to it, is a measure of how much stress is on the body and the cardiovascular system. So, you know, of course, when you look at stress from a health and a longevity standpoint, in particular, you look at stress in the cardiovascular system, it's got huge implications um, simply because it's a, it's a reflection of, of how much um, wear and tear you're putting on your body and how much stress you're accumulating and how much, you know, um, how much damage you're doing to yourself, I guess, in one some respects, because things like not sleeping or eating poorly or being mentally stressed all the time, you know, all, all those things play a role. And, and imposing stress on the body that the body has to then deal with. And the more wear and tear and the more stress you put in the body, the more likely it is over time to break down and to, you know, have maladaptation and to have problems. So it's, it's you know, as a single number, the single variable, I mean, it's, it's far more powerful than looking at cholesterol or looking at triglycerides or looking at uh, even heart rate or looking at blood pressure. I mean, it's, it's a much, much more powerful indicator of kind of an overall 
health and wellness and um, you know just general adaptability of the body. So there's there's tons of research on, on heart rate variability in terms of correlating to sudden cardiac death and recovery from cardiac uh, incidents and just kind of overall cardiovascular health and wellness. So it's it's, a, it's an important index not just for performance and not just for training. It's an important index for for health and wellness and, and life expectancy. And I think the, the simpler it is to measure, you know, with, with my device coming down on the, on the phone, it, it's going to give people uh, a great tool to monitor and, and kind of look at their health and to see what people are doing themselves because when you start to measure heart rate variability and you see the impact you have from, from spending the night out drinking or not sleeping for three days or from, you know, being very mentally stressed over work or family or whatever, you can really start to see the impact that you have and the control that you have over your own health. And I think it's... Uh, you know, it's great to have the feedback because now you can start to see objectively what you're doing yourself and, and hopefully make smarter decisions. Joel, I have a question from a friend of mine. He wanted to know, how does the mitochondria help with the relaxation of a muscle? Um, well, that's a good question. It's a complicated question. So, basically, the speed of relaxation has to do with pumping calcium in and out, right? Yeah. So, calcium, the more calcium gets pumped out, then the faster the muscle can relax. And there's little pumps on the cell that determine the speed of that. And these little pumps called circuit pumps basically pump calcium in and out, right? And those pumps rely on oxidative energy. They rely on mitochondria to provide the oxidative fuel for them to pump the calcium in and out. And so the different pumps you can get are going to be based on how much mitochondria surround them. And the more mitochondria you can surround those pumps with, the faster they can do their job, and the more they can pump uh, calcium in and out, the faster muscle can relax. So that's kind of the, the short, easy answer. It's a little complicated than that. And mm -hmm. there's, there's different expressions of the circuit pump, circuit one and two, and mm -hmm. it depends on the muscle fiber, it depends on a lot of things. But basically, the more you can provide them with, with mitochondria, the faster they can do their job of pumping the calcium in and out, and the better muscle can relax. Joel, I have four weeks. I, I have four weeks. Um, this is just a hypothetical question now. I'm not saying I actually do. But I, let's say I have four weeks to get a Gaelic football team, which is basically uh, it's the Irish version of. It's kind of a cross between rugby and Aussie rules. It's, a, it's an Irish sport, Gaelic football. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But it, it is an A-lactic aerobic sport predominantly, and I've got four weeks to get guys ready. Um, you said earlier on the show if you had four weeks to get someone really fit, you, you probably would use intervals. I might have misinterpreted what you meant there. Would you use intervals in that four weeks to get them ready? Yeah, I mean, you're talking, you're talking four weeks before the start of the season or four weeks before the start of training camp or four weeks before what exactly? Before before the start of the season. Uh, well, then, at that point, I mean, I'd be doing as many specific drills with them as I could. I mean, the, the closer you want to the season, the more specific you want to be. So I, I literally... I don't know if you have any any ability to run, uh, you know, on-field drills, but I'd be doing on-field stuff, you know, as much as possible and doing, you know, just some strength work, to, strength and power work to maintain or, uh, you know, building what they've got. But most of it, I would be is doing, I'd be doing as much specific work as possible. And I'd be on the field, I'd be running specific drills, I'd be doing as much conditioning that's as specific to the, to the yeah. end as possible. Yeah, very good. I, I, I don't know if it's probably what I'm going to tell you, but... 
Yeah, because it's just because uh, myself and another friend of mine were like we, uh, we were both heavily involved in Gaelic games, and we we actually would have input in the drills because we both played the sport. So, um, but we we were discussing. So yeah, we 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 could have input in the drills, but we were discussing because like we both read your book and we were like, you know, we kept saying, oh, how would you like integrate all the stuff in? And I kind of said to my friend, I said, listen, like if you only got four weeks, you're not going to get all this stuff in. I said, like you just need to go like with probably intervals and game small sided games and stuff. If you've only got four or six weeks to get ready for the season, like because that that's just the way Gaelic games is in Ireland. For some people, for some players, they're they're literally going twelve months out of the year. And like the you know our off seasons are like so short like they're literally the longest any player would ever get will be twelve weeks and the average usually is only eight weeks so you know if you got eight weeks you'd be you'd be going extremely well but I just wanted to get your yeah. opinion on that so you you would be you know four weeks or even even six weeks you would be like get as specific as possible straight away off off the bat uh, yeah, absolutely if you've only got four weeks I mean if you've only got four weeks you don't, you don't have time for anything else you better you better get your ass on the field you better be doing the most specific work you can do because that's that's at the end of the day going to prepare them for what they're doing. Yeah. Everything else is building. Everything else is building the foundation. Yeah. It's it's, it's improving the ability um, of them to get into that specific phase and get more out of it. But if, you, if you've only got four weeks, then you need to get specific and you need to start doing what is it, whatever it is they're doing in your sport. You need to do it as much as possible and get them ready for it. But like, uh, you know, when we train when we train fighters. If I've only got a fighter that's got eight weeks, then I'm gonna do a whole bunch of stuff. If I've only got a fighter that's got two weeks. They're gonna spar. I mean, that's the bottom line. I'm not gonna do anything else in two weeks but spar and get them, get them sparring three fives and get them trying to the speed they're they're going and doing intervals. I mean, you, you just gotta do what the event is gonna call for through that close event. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Joel, um, just for any of the listeners, can you give any good resources, whether it's books, DVDs, podcasts, websites, um, just name like your top like whatever, you know, five to eight resources. I'll just throw some stuff off the top of my head. Um, books, I'll tell you. Um, my Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Sapolsky. I think it's a must read for every coach. It's a great book, yeah. Um, there's a book, great book. There's a book called um, Children in Sports Training for Anyone that Trains Youth Athletes. I think it's absolutely essential. A fantastic Joseph, book. Joseph Drabeck's book. Yeah, by Drabeck. Great book. Um, definitely a must read. Um, I really like Berkus Jansky's new book, Special Strength Training for Coaches. Tricks manual hunting for coaches which is available on my site great book um, I like the two block periodization books by Isarin uh, block periodization one and two good books um, I think if people want to get into the science and kind of the physiology behind there's a book called um, I'm going to blank up by uh, oh, what's that guy's name Veru's uh, book Adaptation Sports Training by Vero uh, very good book on kind of physiology. That that book. Yeah, stuff in it. That book is so hard to read. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard to read, but there's, there's just a lot of stuff you can pull out of it. That, you know, at least I can pull out of it that talks about the specific stuff that's changing. And uh, you know, I think from a physiology standpoint, from a few books that gets gets deep into methodology and the science behind what actually happens. So I, I like it. It, it makes Verdejansky's new book a battle to read. I'll just say that much. So <laughs> it's a tough. Yeah, there you go. But it's it's probably because like um, he's Estonian and you know the like the translation and all that was just but um Yeah, definitely. I mean it, all those sources are you know, dense books are not easy to read, but you can definitely pull stuff out of them if you if you spend the time doing it. Definitely. Would you would you recommend um, then, any uh, would you recommend any any of Charlie Francis's uh, um stuff and his DVDs or whatnot? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know it. 
I went to a seminar of his years ago in Vancouver, and uh, the guy, you know, brilliant coach, so he talks and he talks and he talks and he mostly tells stories about training athletes and doesn't give much training information. So if you could get a hold of his DVDs, they're, they're edited down and they're just him talking about training information. Uh, you know, they're great, but in person, man, that guy talks for 10 hours about random stories and told you about 45 minutes of training information. <laughs> but, yeah, his, his books are good. His, uh, James Francis, uh, sorry, James Smith's book, uh, um, The Highway Manual, I think it's called, is good if you can get a hold of that. Um, there's, you know, some different guys online, like Patrick Ward and some other guys that are kind of linked to my website. You can get on their, their site and find some great information. Um, obviously my book I think is important to search people definitely. Um, definitely I'd highly recommend Joel's book for anyone that's listening it was one of my top books of 2011 yeah I think uh, you know, the title also MMA conditioning uh, you know people might think it's, it's literally only about MMA and even though I wrote it about MMA I've gotten a lot of feedback from coaches in NFL and you know NCAA football and soccer and really a hockey a variety of sports that have taken the information that I gave in the book that applies to their sport so you know if people are worried about it, it's just for fighting I think they'll find they can get a lot more out of it than that so I don't know, uh, uh, there's one thing you gotta do Joel you gotta you gotta release that book and rename it cause like Ultimate MA, MA Conditioning was just not like I think as you said like a lot of people see it and like just they just don't read it like and I'm like it's funny, it's such a good book it applies to so many things and people go that's just an MMA book like it's not <laughs> read it <laughs> yeah no, I'm definitely need to get around to uh, rewriting it shortly here and I'm, I'll probably change the title and we'll see but it's uh, you know like I said definitely can be applied to more than just and I have his DVDs and it is it is dense stuff alright but he definitely knows what he's on about um, yeah exactly Joel just for a final question Joel just for young coaches you know like myself I'm only in the field five years like what what would your advice be to, 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 to young coaches out there getting into strength and conditioning uh, I mean I think the best advice I can give any coach is to never stop wanting to learn and improve their knowledge and never and never just kind of jump on to the latest fad or the latest thing being marketed and, and sold in, in the conditioning industry without doing research for yourself or without questioning it. I mean, there's you know, there's definitely good things that kind of came about from some of the functional training stuff and, and you know, now there's something to do CrossFit and the PNEX. I mean, there's, there's always something being marketed to strength conditioning community. There's always some new method that's supposed to be the end-all, be-all. It's, it's a new product. Um, but I think people really need to evaluate and do the homework themselves and, and, and really read the research and, and start to learn how to understand research and extrapolate and, and you know make sure they don't accept it too much but just just make sure you're always learning and you're always evolving yourself as a, a trainer as a coach and you're never satisfied with where you're at uh, because I think the moment you stop learning and think you know everything is when you get passed by by, by everybody else so it's important to, to always be looking to further your education and to you know don't be afraid to try new stuff I mean I, I try new things with my athletes all the time I mean I'm always 
trying some new method or trying some new exercise or trying some new, you know, something and seeing how it works and I'll evaluate it and if it, if it works well then I might begin to use it more outpatient. and if it doesn't work then I'll throw it out. Um, but I think there's, 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 there's got to be constant evolution and, and too many trainers you just kind of get in the rut, you know, this is how I train, this is how I approach things, this is what I do, and that's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, I think the more you can always be looking to improve yourself and evolve your training, you know, in the long run, you're going to be a far, far better coach down the line than, than if you just kind of get content with where you're at and, and just do the same things over and over again. And if worse comes to worse, there's always CrossFit. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, know, you know, I know you, you love CrossFit, John. What was that? If you don't know what you're doing, you can still find a job somewhere. Lots of prostitutes. Joel, um, thanks a million for coming on. That was that was a really great interview and lots of information. I answered a lot of my questions too, and I hope the listeners got a lot out of it. So, guys, thanks for uh, podcasting. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening to the show. I will talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong. <laughs>